Welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perryman, and this show is basically a rip-off of Desert Island Discs. But instead of music and sand, we offer our guests TV and alcohol. Anyway, my first guest is the writer Steve Berry, probably best known for his sterling work with TV Cream, including a fantastic book about toys, plus several books with Phil Norman dedicated to the crisps, chocolate and junk food of my childhood. So without any further ado, let's meet Steve. Hi Steve, how are you? I'm very well, Neil, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us for Perfect Nighting, where you're going to share with us your perfect night in front of the TV. I am. I am. I'm. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. I. Uh, I need a night in. <laughs> Can you explain to us what the uh, environment you're in for your perfect night in looks like? I mean, what kind of chair are you sitting in? I have to. I have to have a big, big, big leather sofa. I need something where I can effectively sort of take up about five different positions during the night so I can be sitting down at first and sort of curled up at the one end of the sofa with a glass in hand and then um, sort of cushions and so on to lie down when I'm feeling a little bit snoozy towards the end and then somewhere right in the middle because I uh, my idea of a perfect night in is to is to watch all this television on sort of Christmas Eve it has to be you know when the long winter nights are drawing in and there's lots of sort of lights and festivities around so I've got that that kind of image in my mind okay Steve so it's six o'clock let's get your perfect night in started what's your first choice Gummidge, this program does, uh, it really reminds me of childhood. In fact, most of the things that I've picked today will remind me of some sort of period in my childhood. I think it's when I was last happy, when I was about nine years old. That's a bit sad. I know, I, uh, but do you know what? There's a, there's a, there's a sort of sense that Wurzel Gummidge itself is sort of drenched in melancholy. The program is just such a brilliant kind of bucolic evocation of, of a, of a, a sort of nostalgic British, English even, sort of village mentality that doesn't seem to exist now. And certainly I don't even think really existed then. So I used to read the Wurzel Gummidge books before the TV series came. So it was the first instance I'd ever had of where the TV show was so vastly different from having read... You know, it was better than the novel. But it was still... It was so sort of beautifully charming. And I I grew up in the northwest of England, quite close to uh, to Liverpool, but... Uh, holidays for me were always in the south. They were always in sort of Devon and Eastbourne and uh, and places like that. So to have a, a lot of shows made in the southern TV region, so you had shows like Famous Five and Wurzel Gummidge, always reminded me of 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 those part of of holiday time, of sort of great rolling expanses of fields that you could run across and have adventures and and there you know and hedgerows and orchards and eccentric tramps walking along the road and so on <laughs> but this the episode that i've the, the episode i picked is the one that also had the other element of it which is that it's the one where wurzel makes a uh, a replacement scarecrow because he's being threatened with going on a bonfire so he makes this uh terrifying creature called daft head
the only rule I've got for my guests coming on the show is that they should choose something pre-Watershed for the six o'clock slot. This is borderline horror movie. Oh, it's terrifying. I mean, first of all, you've got the elements of, uh, you know, they've got the sort of Frankenstein elements of it, you know, Prometheus uh, bringing life from the soil and creating man. And then you've got the fire at the end. It's like the Wicker Man when they're, when they're burning the scarecrow. But this was, this was when Wurzel Gummidge was in its pomp. This is when it was on the front pages of Looking Every Other Week. It was a big thing. You know, it was as big as Star Wars. It was as big as the Smurfs. It was uh, the age I was you know, in 1980. I was nine years old. That, that went out in, in February, I think. And... My birthday's in March, and I asked for the theme tune record, the one that was uh, the one that uh, sorry, John Pertwee had recorded. Hang about, my dears. Won't keep you but a minute. I'm putting my singing there on, you see. I can't sing without my singing there on, can I? <laughs> Have it. Off we go. Till Mother Nature ends, I'll be Wurzel to my friends. And just like John and Sue, you must speak my language too. Not yakety, if you please. You must speak in Wurzelese. This was everything to me then. It was in my head. Um, and I don't think there's a problem with being a little bit scared by kids' TV shows. I mean, the, I mean if you look at that show now and the way it was made, uh, health and safety would be a nightmare. There are, you know, people would being attacked with pitchforks. There are kids in barnyards. It's like Apaches, but made friendly. <laughs> and I think I also had my first uh, kind of prepubescent crush was was on Charlotte Coleman, who played Sue in that. You know, um, I wanted to I wanted to play out with Charlotte Coleman. So lots and lots of things really that made me you know feel. That this was the this would be the perfect show, and very strange as well for me as probably a kid who spent more of his time watching BBC than ITV to have chosen an ITV show, but there are just so many nostalgic memories wrapped up in it that it had to be the first one out. So that episode of Words or Gummage was called Fire Drill, and it aired in February 1980. And for your second choice, we're going to skip forward to 1981. Now get out of that. I mean, I could have chosen any of the puzzle shows from that era, the ones that were sort of either on uh, kind of BBC One Kids TV, like the uh, like Jigsaw or BBC Two, like the Adventure Game. But Now Get Out of That was one that I could watch with the family. Can you explain to, to anybody who doesn't know what this programme is, what it's about? It is basically uh, the idea of any kind of sales and marketing teams uh team building exercise away day out in the in the great british outdoors turned into a tv show two different teams i think uh in the early series there were oxford versus cambridge they would get academics people who probably very good at problem solving but not so good at putting up tents and camping and yomping across the british countryside to um to effectively um try and sort of do a kind of capture the flag type exercise the whole thing that kept it together the whole thing that made it a unique show and a, and a brilliant experience was bernard fork the tv journalist newsreader narrating from the comfort of a bbc studio watching 
the adventures unfold. You'll remember we left the Oxford team working out where they were. We returned to the Oxford team hoping they now know where they are. I can kind of David Attenborough figure kind of commenting on the personality traits, dissecting the characters, giving us little uh, vignettes of, of, of what, what they were like and, uh, and really sort of sardonically and sarcastically narrating. But just look at Zeke. Zeke, remember, is an American. We Brits, well, we don't like to flap, do we? We'll muddle through in the end. As I say, it was a, it was a puzzle-solving show, and those sort of things really got into my head. I've been involved in making shows that have had puzzles in them, uh, sort of kids' TV series back in the days when I used to work in telly. Um, I've written for Only Connect, so I've, done, I've come up with puzzles to try and fox teams. But this had, um, this had a sort of a veneer of... of it was sort of grown-ups doing grown-up things. It was always couched like it was a, uh, like they were trying to rescue a spy or defuse a nuclear bomb before it went off. But it was all still kind of grown-ups. No kids. It wasn't kids playing at it. It was it was adults playing and kids games. And as I say, that meant that I could watch it with my dad, and my dad would enjoy the commentary as much as I did. What you're going to witness now is a remarkable exercise in Anglo-American relations. You have to get the car. What are we looking Calm at the back for? Calm down a minute. Look, let's the instructions. We don't know what the instructions are from the moment. Now look, just calm down. Derek, would you read it out loud? It says, you may not walk inside the bog no, area. That's what it says here, walk. Do not walk into the bog area. Well, we can lay in the bog area. Do you know, Zeke's right. He is right. Only the Brits have had enough and they won't even listen to him. This is early reality TV show. Just in terms of its format, there have been reality TV shows before, but they were always done by the Open University and it was people adopting, you know, they're living like Iron Age man. So they would be um, sort of acting the roles, you know, and almost like they wouldn't be being themselves. Whereas this, it was presenting somebody with... An outdoor challenge, you know, forget your bare grills, etc. This is, you know, can Fiona, who's the secretary in the managing director's office, skin and, and cook a rabbit and kill it and eat it and, and not get sick? We've given her two dead rabbits, a pot, some onions, carrots and tea bags. It's more than enough to help them survive their first night out in the wild. But the whole thing also had a sort of low budget kind of vibe to it before. I think now, if you did it nowadays, they'd try and showbiz it up a bit. You know, you'd probably have somebody chasing them and uh, helicopters and all this kind of thing. The The key thing was that I could just, it was something that I could watch with my dad. And uh, again, we both had our tea. We could sit there. It was pre-homework sort of telly and um, both enjoy it for uh, in our own way. Okay, Steve, it's seven o'clock, and we're skipping forward yet another year, this time to 1982. Three, two, one. Uh, it's based on Uno, Dos, Tres from, from Spanish TV. Again, another show that has uh, puzzles and, and requires some engagement with it. You know that you need to try and solve clues to to do it. But uh, but this, uh, you know, had everything. Um, it's it's interesting that all of these shows, all of these ones that have lodged in my memory, have all come from a certain period of my life, and it's that sort of very late childhood. So probably when you're old enough to remember telly, but not um, 
not teenage enough to be really arch about a Saturday night entertainment show. I mean, it's a delight from start to finish. There is just, they throw everything in, including the kitchen sink. This fantastic programmable dishwasher, compactor and computerised split-level microwave oven. So you start with the quiz and that... Uh, my favourite part of the whole show, if I'm honest, is just the sound effects that play in the background when they're trying to answer those quiz, the quiz questions. I, I just that little sort of tick 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 tickety tick sort of sound effects that go behind. It. I've tried for ages to try and find that cue somewhere. For me, it's more tension-inducing and more resonant than the countdown thirty-second clock. It's just to have that whole kind of ticking thing. It's got all the clocks in there. Cawthon. Don't know. Co. Sebastian. Sheen. Barry. Smallwood. Cathy. Botham. Ian. McEnroe. Uh, John. Ted Rogers, you know, just just charming. Could get away with doing the worst quality jokes. I mean, ad-libs that aren't even jokes. They're just remarks they, or, or repeating back to the contestants what they've said to him. But always, always happy to be there. And that show just made me happy. So the the... the 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 one that we've picked is the space edition. It's nineteen eighty two. I mean, we're talking about a year before Return of the Jedi. So you know the kind of program, the kind of films and the movies and the things that you would see in you know Buck Rogers in the twenty fifth century. But you are getting instead Pat Coombs. Pat Coombs playing. Guess guess what Pat Coombs is playing? Oh, she's playing a tea lady. Uh, she's dressed like Hilda Ogden. She is, um, yeah, of course she is. But there's this beautiful moment where she's telling Ted that she's, and she's sort of in character as herself rather than as the Pat Coombs char lady character. And she's telling Ted that she's seen him perform live and she loses confidence in the anecdote. I saw you live and in cabaret last week. Never seen you before. Did you enjoy Live it? and in cabaret. Yes, I did, but um, it was different, you know, sort What'd of you very mean? different from the way you are on 321. Really? Mm. Well, how different? Well, well, sort of some of the jokes. What do you mean, you know, some I... of the jokes? Well, you know. I'm... Well, what, what was wrong with them? I wouldn't know how to describe them, really, like uh, <laughs> naughty, but nice. <laughs> okay. And everyone's yeah. going, yes, we remember the fresh cream cakes adverts that you did, Pat. And she gets this little ripple at the end of it. And Roy Kinnear is in it as well, f- fresh from his uh, fresh from his appearance in Blake 7 and dressed in what looks like the same kind of glittery gold costume, but just still being Roy Kinnear. It doesn't matter whether you put Roy Kinnear in space or, or, or in, you know, a building site. He's Roy Kinnear. And what's wrong with my mother? Nothing's wrong with her, but, I mean, a weekend with her... Is like a close encounter with the Third Reich. <laughs> and then he does a bit of business as well with a sandwich and and, uh, and sort of says, oh, it's a, it's a reference to... And then that sort of tails off. You don't know why he's mumbling through a sandwich. There's probably some character that he did. Again, they're all talking about adverts and, and, and things that are, were obviously really topical and popular at the time. For me, the highlight has to be lipstick, which is <laughs> like hot gossip but tepid. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And they do this incredible dance routine to, what was it, Space Invaders. They don't even dance to a particular hit of the day. There's no, it's not like they go, uh, you know, Starship Troopers or something like that. It's, it's, um... it's something they've cobbled together that afternoon, isn't on a Casio keyboard. It's 
been put together by the house, but you know, Yorkshire TV house band with all of the different, as many. Have you got a synthesizer, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, they can go beep, 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 that'll do. Just put, turn that into a song. And they, yeah, and they, of course, they do it and they're wearing the glittery wigs, which, you know, could not, tinfoil, they look like tinsel, don't they? Those wigs couldn't be more 1982. They don't wear Dealey Boppers, which I was expecting, but it's, it, it, it is, yeah, they had loads of those bands. The Brian Rogers Connection, the, the Gentle Sex, but spelt like secretaries abbreviated um, lipstick I have to admit I'd completely forgotten to get Neil Innes on uh, bless him looking uh, uh, exactly like Matt Johnson from the the with his guitar around him dressed in a spacesuit with a with a fish inside the space helmets looking like a goldfish swimming around in a bowl and then and he's he's there i think to be honest with you i know lots of people have very fond memories of neil innes and the ruttles and uh bonza dog doodah band i think my memory of neil innes starts with that episode but though bless him he's he's doing his best to be to be showbiz with ted and and reading out the clues. That's clues. They're married and off on a trip, combining and then coming out. If that's a star clue, here's another. Roy's middle's a big one, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. The only one that I got was was the bin, which was it was basically because uh, Roy had uh, brought on a, a ring, which was like a, an O shaped, and then there was. And there was some reference in the clue to the to the big middle or his big middle. So the big middle of Roy is zero, a big fat zero. It has to be the bin. But you know, there's no reason why that that couldn't have been. As big zero looks like a wheel. If you had this wheel around four corners of the globe, uh, <laughs> it's the car. And I, but I, I, I'm watching it at the end, and of course, on on this particular one, and the penultimate clue, the the the, the couple reject. A brilliant holiday to Florida, but then they so they they lose that holiday, and there's obviously disappointment because you're thinking that's the star prize, and then they come on with the last one, and it, the clue ends up being like kind of if you have to take dust away from stardust, what do you end up with? Star, yes, it's the star prize, and they get the cut and the delight on the woman's face, and I was clapping, and I <laughs> I'm a grown man sitting there going that's fantastic. I just feel so pleased for that couple, and that was the beauty of that show. It was a proper feel good show. There was no no cynicism in it at all. We're up to about eight o'clock now. Do you fancy some some crisps? Yes, thank you very much. I got to choose my own. Yeah, what what I, snacks have you chosen? If, if, if well, in keeping with the era, I would like to have a big bag of nibbit wheels, please. Those are those uh, reformed potato snack in the shape of wheels that I think were basically late seventies, early eighties. The closest you can get nowadays is um, there's an M and S kind of share bag of uh, sour cream and onion flavored shapes. And some of the shapes inside those bags are wheels. So if you want to sit there and slowly, uh, like like a, like the rock bands of the 1970s, just get all of the wheels out of the packet and put them into a bowl for me, then I'll have those. Would you like a chocolate snack? Oh, well, you've got to have matchmakers. If you're watching telly, it's got to be working your way through an old-style box of matchmakers. What's tiny and thin with a pronounced Christmas? And a character, all of its own. Your mother. Seventy sticks of chocolate. Orange, peppermint, coffee. Matchmakers. 
as relaxed as the people who eat them. So now you're reclining on the sofa with, with your crisps and your chocolate. It's about eight o'clock and we're going to get more Christmassy now because you said you feel like Christmas. This is just simply called Kate. It is the uh, Kate Bush 1979 Christmas special. And I just basically had to get some Kate Bush in here somehow. So there aren't, there aren't many tv specials that are all just non-stop kate bush and this is also this is her early era so it's all the material is all off her first album and actually in advance of her second album and there's a couple of tracks off her third album so she a, a lot of the material that she she ended up releasing in those first three years is all stuff that she'd written as a teenager and it isn't just her just straightforwardly sitting at the piano and performing because it's Kate Bush she has to do the full theatrical dance and mime and costume sort of stuff is there any particular favorite track that she performs that you like yeah my uh, one of my favorite Kate Bush tracks of all time is actually violin um which again it was written when she was a teenager it was performed by her when she was part of the KT Bush band which was a band that was put together especially for her um, in order that she could spend time performing live and rehearsing live before she even went on to record. So this is the this is the sort of the, the very young pre-fame Kate Bush going around working men's clubs in London and, and playing with a band. And it's so it has got that kind of slightly rockist element to it. It's got a it's got a guitar solo in the middle. Um you know, it's very it's a very atypical Kate Bush track actually. Um, but it is one of my favourites for those reasons. Uh, and of course, of course, if she's going to perform it uh, on a BBC special, she has to have two dancers dressed up as giant violins, like some kind of fever dream behind her. Um, and it, the, to me, this is this is the best version of Kate Bush. This is the um, the slightly. I know people sort of refer to her as ethereal now, but for me, I think she was she was arty. She had she had a, a, a she was still sort of connected to the rock kind of uh, scene at the time. She had elements of folk from the early seventies uh, and late sixties. Again, there was there was sort of something very English about her. There was a slight bowiness. Um, there was just the sort of the most natural form, if you like, the one before she sort of adopted, started adopting other personas, and and especially sort of in the eighties when most people discovered Kate for the first time was to see the sort of glam, big hair, hounds of love kind of Kate Bush. For for me, this is just a, I don't know. There's just something awkward and unrehearsed, and I know it is massively rehearsed but it's it it's it's gawky it doesn't have polish um and it's very raw and you know it was it again i was i'm young when this goes out it's but it was she you know was the kind of the the teenage crush for me this is the sort of time when i got very obsessed in you know with with music and art and the people doing it and she for me that was she was she became the musical love of my life from that period onwards oh bless so we're up to nine o'clock now uh, a change of gears and the next program you've chosen is also just the name <laughs> kelly monteith <laughs> 
<laughs> it's uh, it, I I feel sad that Kelly Monteith has sort of been forgotten by. Uh, if you're writing the history of comedy and comedy series in the UK, he's very much fallen into the cracks, which I think is a very very deep shame because, as we know, there is a period from sort of the early eighties when um, alternative comedy emerges, and. Uh, you know, it's so aggressive and it's wearing Doc Martin boots and it's been university educated and it's polemic and it's strident and it's violent and it bursts onto the screens from sort of 82 right through to 85. So you get the young ones and you get Saturday Live, you get Alexi Sale and so on. But prior to that, you had the kind of university educated, smart, not the nine o'clock news kind of comedy and then slotted into exactly that nine o'clock BBC Two period, that time slot uh, for... Four years or so, you get Kelly Monteith. And again, this is a show that uh, all of the time we would watch, my dad and I would watch all of the comedy. He was great. He introduced me to Hitchhikers. He introduced me to Dave Allen. Um, he introduced me to lots of uh, the comedy shows that I've already named. But Kelly Monteith seems to just get completely forgotten. And there's just so much about what he does in that series that is groundbreaking. He does the... He does the Gary Shandling thing of breaking the fourth wall and talking. He's within a set of his of his home, and he's talking directly to the audience at home. He's doing that kind of Dave Allen style of rambling anecdote, um, except he's doing it standing up and he's walking around his house. He's just doing, his, you know, he's putting his tie on, he's getting dressed, he's chatting, he's having breakfast and so on. And it is effectively just a series of stand-up uh routines strung together with a few sketches that sort of make literal the the subjects that he's talking about i tell you what made me thinking about it, start thinking about it is doctors i suddenly thought about doctors i thought now wait a second doctors treat all kinds of contagious diseases they're around people with all kinds of these contagious diseases and yet they hardly ever get them <laughs> you know i mean if they did they wouldn't want to treat anybody <laughs> Doc, I think I got bubonic plague. Get the hell away from me! <laughs> he is probably he's probably the first person that I remember laughing out loud at so much that I was silent, that I was wheezing and and, and I couldn't catch my breath because I was laughing so much. And we uh, we as a family we went to see him at the Southport Floral Hall, um, and he had a routine about. Uh, a dog being sick and that everybody knows when your dog is sick you must sort of test his nose to see if his nose is warm and he does a whole routine that lasts about five minutes of people going up and going honk oh his nose is warm he must be and the dog's just going leave me alone i just want to throw up and be sick and he masterfully told that to the audience again he was probably wearing the tuxedo with the bow tie he had the trappings of an old style stand-up but he had the material of a modern day stand up. The only other people I ever saw at Southport Floral Hall doing comedy were Ken Dodd and Ben Elton and Rick Mayle. So for me, he sits in that kind of memory. And the reason I think that people have forgotten him is because he that there was this sort of sense that he was just another one of those kind of acceptable middle of the road comics that would happily, you know, sit alongside uh, Cannon and Ball or a little enlarged, that there was, he was largely inoffensive. The theme music for the show is composed by Ronnie Hazelhurst, and he's done that usual trick of taking the name of the person he's writing about and turning it into a tune, so you get Kelly Monteith, da-da-da, Kelly Monteith. Um, 
so it had that sort of vibe about sort of it was all just a little bit comfortable it was all just a little bit middle class but and you know some of the sketches were a bit long and some of the actors that you'd see you would expect to see them everywhere else you know probably Michael Charvel Martin and uh, uh, the you know the usual people will turn up uh, guest roles Royce Mills is probably playing a businessman but it, uh, but the material itself, and I think he was a strong, strong stand-up comedian, um, and I think that it's just a shame. I, I imagine that it shows like a kick up the eighties, and and uh, uh, a naked video just sort of trampled all over that slot and made him, made him ultimately just a little bit forgotten. Yes, I am, and you know you've given me a great idea for an execu suit sketch. Sketch? You mean a drawing? No, no, you know a bit, a hunk, a funny piece. I don't understand. Well. Let me give you the premise, see? This new young executive, right? Comes to work, first day in a job. Wants to make a good impression, comes to work wearing his brand new executive suit. Well, I don't think that's very funny. I'm finished yet. Comes into the executive dining room, an executive waitress, also on her first day in a job, also wants to make a good impression, comes in, trips over his executive shoes, spills a hot tureen of executive soup in his lap, soaking right through to his executive shorts and scalding his potential. <laughs> <laughs> I know it doesn't sound funny, but see, it's what it is. It's the pricking of the bubble of corporate dignity. There's an entire series which is about what his life is like as a comedian in a popular TV series filming sketches on location, which is all filmed on... So the whole series is filmed on location as he's filming sketches to go into the series that he's talking about while he's talking to us. Um, so it gets very meta textual in that sense. Very, you know, sort of, there's the sort of thing that Stephen Moffat would do with Joking Apart. Um, and, you know, everything he's ever written since. There's sort of layers and layers and layers. And it was just, you know, this was written by Neil Shand. This was written by the guy who used to write Mike Yarwood and used to write Dave Allen. So the, the, you, can, you can almost... The, there are moments when you can see Kelly Monteith's his voice comes out of it and you can see when he's sort of being slightly restricted by the trappings of a BBC Two studio-bound early 1980s show, multi-camera show. And, and and the worst thing for me was that he just disappeared. There's absolutely no reason. Yeah, he probably did do Dennis O'Connor. But then I think he he was Canadian. He's probably just gone... I, I believe he lives in sort of Florida or somewhere now. So he's probably doing cruise ships or something. But I think it's a shame because for me, he was one of the voices of early 80s, what I would term uh, would deem alternative comedy. Okay, given it's half past nine and well past the watershed, do you fancy some alcohol? Thank you very much. As it's uh, as it's Christmas Eve, and as I've talked a lot about my dad, I think I would go with my dad's favourite drink, which was Bacardi and Coke, which I can drink until the cows come home and not uh, not get too drunk. And it just again just reminds me of holidays, probably because my dad used to give me little sips of it when I was on holiday. I used to hate the adverts in the cinema. You know the Bacardi adverts in the cinema; they went on for ages. It's this is the nine forty two commute. That's it. This is the yeah. bus off. Yeah, that's just yeah. yeah. Peckham on a wet Saturday afternoon. Next door's buddy. Yeah, don't judge a product by how it's advertised. That's all I would say. Okay, Steve, so you're reclining on the sofa with a Bacardi and Coke, and your next choice is. This is 
GBH. So why have you chosen GBH, Steve? This is the, the, the perfect era for me. I'd just gone to university. I'd, I'd grown up in the in Liverpool in the, in the 80s. So I had seen the rise of the militant tendency. I had seen um, the shiny suited socialists who looked like they had a little bit too much money and I'd seen the riots and everything like that and this is one of those fantastic political conspiracy thrillers beautifully written by Alan Bleasdale and just perfectly acted the 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 cast Robert Lindsay Michael Palin uh Lindsay Duncan just everybody is pitch perfect all the way through uh, it hits every note it hits every beat it is just one of the most perfect dramas ever made so it's 1991, Channel 4. Could you summarise the basic plot in a nutshell without giving any spoilers away? Well, it is effectively what is this happening in politics nowadays. So you've got uh, the rise of a very far left um, council in Liverpool. Um, at the same time, all the sort of the centrist dads are being shunted out of the party. Um, and then you've got this figurehead, this, uh, this kind of uh, too cool, too smooth politician called Michael Murray who's very clearly modelled on Derek Hatton uh, played by Robert Lindsay Um, and it effectively charts how the left shows how it's infiltrated from by far-right activists who pose as agitators from the left and effectively it maps this kind of breakdown of Michael Murray but at the same time it's it's an ensemble piece there's sort of three or four stories you've got Michael Palin as this kind of uh, old teachers union rep who is uh, feeling disenfranchised and he's eventually sort of forced face to face with Michael Murray. Because here we all are, living under the most reactionary, democratically elected government we've ever known, in a labour controlled city where all animals are equal but some councillors are more equal than others, where too often lions are led by donkey jackets, living proof that the further left you go, the more right wing you become. We have to behave with dignity and with honour. The climax episode for me is episode four, which is called uh, Message Sent, and it takes place um, in a hotel, uh, which is clearly modelled on the... um, the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, and there's a there's sort of all sorts of political meetings going on and personal meetings going on, but at the same time, there is a Doctor Who convention happening in in the hotel. Jeff, Jeff, where do you keep your Jurex? What? Where do you keep your Jurex? In your wallet. No, the Jurex for the machine. In the machine. It's empty. Jurex, the biggest exterminator of them all. Exterminate, exterminate, ow! It's it's based on something that happened in real life, and this is why, um, having watched this in 1991, looking at it and going, hang on, this reminds me very much of 1986's MonsterCon 2 convention that I was at, where a whole bunch of Doctor Who monsters uh, who were in one side of the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, kind of, at the end of the night, everyone had a few drinks and the guests are all moving around. All these blokes dressed as monsters, including people who are quite well known in, in Doctor Who circles these days, like Nicholas Pegg and Jim Sangster, me dressed as a unit soldier, along with a Cyberman, a Silurian, a Sontaran, invaded the other half of the hotel where there was a wedding taking place. And I remember at one point I was just sort of chatting to this girl who was a guest of the wedding, looking down onto the dance floor where this couple had just got married and watching all these Doctor Who monsters dancing in amongst the guests. And I was talking to her and saying, um, 
you know, kind of, uh, do, do you know the people getting married? And and, and I, my, my recollection is a little vague. So either I was talking to, or it was the wedding of, the niece of Alan Bleasdale. Jeff, it's the one with the pompadour. Hey, The barman is robbing you. It's the one with the pompadour. How do you know that? Because whenever we come in here, Teddy gives him a tenner and he gives us free drinks all night. Free drinks! So he took, he lifted this real-life, very surreal event and plonked it right into the middle of GBH. And it is at the moment when you think it's one of the most surreal things happening. Um, and then all these Doctor Who monsters and Daleks and so on are effectively uh, a kind of a vivid portrayal of, of Michael Murray's breakdown. But, of course, me watching that thinking, hang on, hang on. <laughs> and I knew, the weird thing is, is that I knew some of the people who were on the screen as well. So they obviously got the same Doctor Who club members, the people that I knew from back then. I heard a rumor that um, Una McCormack is one of the one of the Doctor Who fans, and I also recognised on screen a, a mate of mine called Gary Cullen, who's dressed as Peter Davison. And then there's one scene where Michael Murray sort of turns around and he's developed all of these different nervous tics, uh, one of which is a wink, and he sort of turns around and looks at one of the Doctor Who's and he inadvertently winks. And this Doctor Who dressed as Tom Baker is a chap I know called John Field, and he gets a real extreme close-up as he winks back at him. <laughs> it's, it's like this. Imagine I've gone to university. I've sort of left my uh my kind of doctor who club days behind i'm trying to reinvent myself as some kind of cool sporty guy who likes music and girls and then there's this doc there's this, this drama on and there's all of these people that i know recreating a scene from my childhood it was um yeah it was it, i'm not saying it led to my breakdown but it was one of the most surreal moments of my life if it was up to me actually if it was my perfect night in it would be all seven episodes of gbh it is probably my favorite drama i watch it once a year it nails that um, that kind of militant tendency, that hard left um, political outlook, the the idea of the purity and the fact that it can be so infiltrated, and to see to see the echoes of it in the present day, I think I think everybody who uh, has any interest in politics whatsoever should be forced to watch GBH. GBH takes us up to ten forty-five, Steve, and I believe we're going to finish your perfect night in with a movie. <laughs> I have chosen Steptoe and Son. So, Steve, how old were you when you first saw Steptoe and Son, the movie? I'm not sure where I was when I saw the movie. I definitely remember the TV sitcom before this, but um, it would have been in childhood, um, which is a bit strange because it is a little bit ruder than the TV version. To be honest with you, we could be watching any of those movies. We could be watching um, Are You Being Served? It could be a carry-on movie. It could be Man About the House. But I think Steptoe and Son does everything that I want from uh, um, uh, a TV sitcom that's been turned into a film. So we have all the establishing shots, you know, the, 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 the beats that you get at the start of the story because they have to uh, retell the entire story from the beginning. So you have to set them up as the uh, two uh, totters who uh, live together and that they hate each other. But you have very swiftly move on then to the idea that they go out for a night at a working men's club and they get to see a bit of crumpet and watching the stripper and so on. And it has um, in common with uh, pretty much every film that I would have watched throughout my childhood and teenage years from George Formby to The Likely Lads to The Carry-Ons, the idea that it doesn't matter how uh, ugly, clumsy, 
uh, poor, uh, thick, or uh, damaged the bloke is, that there will be a woman somewhere who will come along and rescue him. And in this case, it's the stripper, uh, played by Caroline Seymour, who is the, the woman who rescues Harold from his uh, pit of despair, and in keeping with every movie of that time, uh, takes him on holiday. So it's the honeymoon. So you even get to go abroad and uh, take some time in Spain. And again, this is kind of baked into my history as well, because my parents, when they met and went on holiday, they went to uh, Benidorm. I have all these photographs of um, of my parents on their honeymoon, but they went to Paris for a weekend. And then only later did I find out that uh, having thought for years that I was conceived on their honeymoon, turns out I was conceived the summer before um, uh, in Benidorm. Thank you. Welcome to the Hotel Miramar. Are, um, are those your bags over there? Uh, oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Oh, come on, hurry up. I'll leave off. It was your fault we missed the bus. But we wouldn't have missed the bus if you went to shout. Gibraltar is British as we got off at the airport. Half an hour in the customs, trying to explain in Spanish that you was local, motto local. I knew we should have gone to Bog. No, they speak English there. Uh, of course, there's a sleazy rep who seduces the woman. Um, and of course, then they have to go home. Um, to be honest with you, I, I don't really care a great deal about the plot or the jokes of these things. It's more a sense of the ambience and the atmosphere. To be honest with you, it's more the familiarity that appeals to me and there's something quite comfortable um, about those kind of sitcoms uh, especially those that are see all uh, even as a child I seem to identify with with adults male adults in the middle of a midlife crisis I wanted to be Tom Good for years I think you know as an eight-year-old I'd look at him and think oh wouldn't it be great to be 40 and wearing a jumper you bloody fool what's wrong with Getting married? Nothing to a decent girl, but not one like her. She's a stripper. What's that got to do? They're not from marrying, they're for looking at. Oh, come on, you said yourself. And keep it going as long as you can. Oh, I didn't mean marry her. I meant give her one now and again. A bit on the side. I don't mind the hat. I don't want her as a bit on the side. I'm going to marry her in church. Properly. Over my dead body. If necessary. The vicar's going to be a bit confused, but that's up to him. And then, of course, when they come back uh, from this holiday, they've split up. There is there is just this uh, tragic moment when Harold is reading through all of the letters and the postcards have been backed up through the postal service and he gets them all in one day. And over uh, you know a couple of minutes as he reads through them all, he realises that she's run off with the rep. And um, Albert is it uh, goes from sort of gloating to to very um sympathetic and empathetic um but then there's this just beautifully tragic moment don't you start feeling sorry now that's what you've always worked for isn't it what you've always wanted i didn't do anything you didn't have to it was there you're always there and i thought that just that is such their relationship just um, that uh, there are people in the world who just seem to have a ball and chain around their ankle, their tails trapped in the door, they just can't get away from their family, they can't get away from their upbringing, they can't get away from their social class. So it does, it's a, I think that's a great, <laughs> a great way to go to bed.
on Christmas Eve before waking up and handing out presents. It's just to sort of, you end up feeling grateful for the things that you do have. So this film takes us right up to midnight, so it's actually Christmas Day now. So Merry Christmas, Steve. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Neil. Yeah, I hope you had a lovely time. And there's an entertaining lineup tonight on Steve Berry's Perfect Night In, starting at six o'clock with Wurzel Gummidge, followed by Now Get Out of That. At seven, Ted Rogers and Dusty Bin are back with 321, and Kate's here at eight, whoever she is. At nine, it's the irrepressible Kelly Monteith, and there's a classic episode of Alan Bleasdale's memorable drama, GBH, at 9.30. We round off the evening with Steptoe and Son, the movie, at 10.45, and that's Steve Berry's perfect night in tonight, here on this podcast. So, Steve, my final question to you. If you could share your perfect night in with anyone, who would you choose? Do you know what? Because I think it needs to be an education, I will choose to share it with both of my children, aged eight and three. Um, and I think, first of all, they'll enjoy staying up that late. And secondly, these are very important programmes with very important lessons that they need to see. So they might not enjoy it, but by heck, I'm going to make sure that they see all these shows. Steve, thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Neil. Thank you.